this is uh, Alex Cummings back again at uh, Sacrif 2017. Uh, we're talking with um, historians and other authors about their, you know, recently published or forthcoming uh, research on planning, urban studies, housing, architecture, all the kind of things that we love at Tropics of Meta and um, that everybody at Sacrif uh, likes to geek out about too. So here we go. Uh. So my name is Andrew Carl. I'm a professor of history and African American studies at the University of Virginia, where I um, teach courses on uh, history of housing, real estate, land use, and development, and um, write about the history of coastal America. Yeah, you uh, published a book a few years ago called um, "The Land Was Ours: How Black Beaches Became White Wealth in the Coastal South." And uh, there's a really exciting uh, new book coming out from Yale um, called Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Now, just a little background. It's not really background, but um, I had a friend in grad school who uh, was doing her work on Russian history and Soviet history, and this meant she had to like go to Vladivostok and like bribe ex-Soviet librarians to use the copy machine. I had another friend who uh, decided to do her dissertation on Hawaii and Cuba, and I thought the second person was a little more clever in their plans. So the question has to be asked, did you come to this topic just so you could spend time at the beach? <laughs> You're not the first person to ask that. Um, in fact, actually, I spend far more time um, digging through property records, um, conducting lots of oral history interviews with people who no longer live by the beach, which is one of the parts of the story I tell is how um, particularly African-American communities um, had seen their um, coastal land holdings, which were quite substantial at the turn of the 20th century, um, slowly and quite in times quite dramatically um, decrease as a result of um, real estate speculation and a variety of um, predatory actions by um, land developers as well as um, you know, working in concert with public officials. So the point is is that oftentimes um, you know, part of the story I write about in both books is how beaches became so privatized and so exclusive. So part of the irony is, is that um, in many instances the places I write about I can't actually get to, um, <laughs> nor can the rest right. of the public. <laughs> right. So that's, that's the story itself. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I I'm obviously uh, jesting because these books are clearly um, based on really heavy archival, uh, yeah, <laughs> nitty-gritty uh, research, uh, probably in some like uh, musky basements yeah, of yeah, city halls. Yeah, well, yeah. this book I spent a lot of time in um, you know, the Connecticut State Archives, which are um, housed in a basement in Hartford, Connecticut, which is um, pretty far from the shore. <laughs> the happiest place on earth. Um, so what is the story here? Um, what happens to... Uh, beaches in America, and how is that uh, driven by um, race mm. and class? So, the, the book that I just finished, it's coming out um, in spring of 2018 from the University Press. Uh, it tells the story of the Connecticut shoreline um, and uses the Connecticut shoreline as a sort of microcosm for understanding um, wealth inequality, um, poverty, racial segregation. Um, and the, what I describe as the privatization of public space in modern America. And um, it does so through the story of not just the shoreline, but also um, the social activist uh, Ned Cole, who um, many people probably have not heard of, although he's someone who um, everyone in Connecticut of a certain age knows all too well um, and has very strong opinions, um, positive or negative, about him. Um, Ned was someone who... Um, 
was like many sort of social activists in the 1960s, um, he was focused on trying to find ways to sort of bridge um, the, the growing chasm between um, white suburban culture and um, inner city America, and doing so through trying to find ways to, um, in, in his, in his um, sense, toward um, finding ways to sort of bring um, inner city children and um, middle class white uh, suburban uh, families into contact, finding ways to facilitate um, sort of greater racial contact and as well um, trying to use that to sort of break down what he saw as some of the sort of social barriers that um, plagued the Northeast, um, Connecticut in particular, but um, really the nation as a whole. Now, how this ties in... So, so how this ties in with um, the issue of beaches is that, you know, in the course of him trying to really um, sort of facilitate contact um, and start programs that would sort of provide greater opportunities for um, urban minority youth to get out of the city, um, to um, enjoy outdoor resources, uh, parks, playgrounds, um, things that were um, sorely lacking in many um, ghettoized black neighborhoods, in part from um, Connecticut being one, um, which is where he was working from. Um, he began trying to lead sort of expeditions down to the Connecticut shoreline um, to go and you know, sort of bring uh, busloads of children down to the beach. Um, he didn't start this as a sort of protest at all. Um, you, know, he, you know, he was very clearly sort of you know, trying to do this in sort of, you know, the best of intentions. Um, but as he discovered, um, there was nowhere that they could go. In fact, um, as he soon learned, um, you know, much of the Connecticut shoreline was effectively closed off to the general public. Now this goes against, um, first one, a sort of long-standing tradition that goes all the way back to the Roman Empire, which states that uh, beaches are public land. Um, this is sort of codified in the uh, public trust doctrine, um, sort of woven into American um, common law. And, and along with that, um, you had not just sort of, uh, you had both, this worked in a variety of mechanisms. One, you had um, lots of private beach associations, which I sort of describe in sort of history of these. These are kind of, you know, in a sense, sort of gated communities were founded by, um, uh, as vacation communities, many, um, by mostly very upper class wealthy um, whites in Connecticut. Uh, and they, and these were sort of, you know, quite literally, sort of privatized spaces. You could not get to the shore through them. But then you had, um, and these, and there was hundreds of these along the Connecticut shore. I sort of detailed the sort of growth of these um, kind of privatized forms of governance um, and how they really were sort of um, indicative of uh, concentration of wealth and how that concentration of wealth sort of took on a spatial dimension um, along the shoreline. But then you had this other practice, which was even more sort of um, questionable, which was, was that even the public beaches were not really open to the public. Um, the town beaches um, amongst the towns along the Connecticut shoreline um, were essentially sort of public for residents only. Um, some, like the extreme variation was Greenwich, Connecticut, which quite literally stated that if you were not a resident, a taxpaying resident of Greenwich, you could not come onto their public beach. Um, then, but other, other towns had, you know, if they didn't adopt that extreme explicit form, they had other more subtle sort of forms, whether it be through, um, you know, extremely high fees for non-residents to buy, you know, to have to buy a beach pass, um, lack of parking available, a variety of subtle mechanisms of exclusion. But the end result was is that he um, learned quickly, quickly learned that um, you know there was a problem here. That in fact um, the problem being in this case um, the way that um, the wealthy in Connecticut had really sort of um, hoarded resources, not just sort of you know, um, 
you know, through housing and through residential patterns, which I go on the detail, the ways that sort of um, you know, many of these communities became so exclusive and, and so overwhelmingly white through zoning laws and through um, various um, practices within um, the municipal code, but also how um, these um, beaches really, you know, and the sort of privatized sort of spaces that they became, um, created were part of a sort of larger culture of exclusion um, that sort of prevailed across the state. And it's sort of worth noting, you know, that Connecticut has been and, and remains to this day, you know, really what the most, as I described, the most unequal state in America. The gap between the wealthy um, and the poor is, is wider in Connecticut than any other state in the country. Um, it's so, also the wealthiest state in the country, isn't it? I mean, in per capita terms. I mean, it, yeah, it depends on by some, by some measures, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it, but it's all. I mean, it's a really bizarre place because you know you have these sort of. I mean, some of these numbers lie. Like so, for instance, the city of Hartford today, which is um, a you know, very deeply impoverished city, one of the poorest cities in America, um, a majority um, a majority minority um, city. But Metro Hartford, if you include the metro area, including its suburbs, is the fourth wealthiest um, metropolis in the world. I mean, it's right behind Silicon Valley. Wow. With the amount of wealth. So, I mean, think about, I mean, that right there sort of gives you an indication of these stark divides um, uh, between sort of, you know, the concentration of wealth and poverty, the sort of, you know, these, bar you know, again, barriers that were, you know, not just obviously in beaches, but within school systems. I mean, and this was, a, you know, an issue that was taking place throughout this time period is um, how, um, how do we resolve um, the problem of sort of separate and unequal education in the state. And so, the beat, so for me, the beach became both a place to explore this, but also explore the connections, as I described, between um, extreme social inequality um, and um, harmful environmental practices, um, and the ways in which sort of wealth, sort of privatization and exclusion weren't, wasn't just bad for society, but was actually, in this case, bad for the very environments that they were seeking to keep to themselves. Wow. So I'm. I want to understand sort of. Uh chronology a little bit because from what you've described it sounds like there were very exclusionary practices for a long time so but but then you also seem to be describing a narrative of progressive privatization of public life in America just in general yeah um, well, so what's the inflection what yeah, point here is it civil rights that's is a great it? question so so in one sense these types of exclusionary practices that I found along in coastal Connecticut towns uh, began really early. I mean, you know, the, the early 20th century. I mean, the whole sort of rise of these private beach associations um, were, were, you know, began in the 1800s, but initially they began as a way of sort of just kind of providing infrastructure in areas that were sparsely developed. I mean, they were not sort of um, founded, many of the early beach associations were not founded with these exclusionary aims in mind. They were just a way of sort of actually um, creating some form of governance um, and, and as a sort of tool for development um, in areas where um, you know, there was very little, um, you know, this was again, you know, there was very sparsely, it was sparsely populated for months a year around population. Um, but then, as we get into the mid-20th century, as we get to the time period where, um, uh, following the Great Migration, following the sort of growth of African-American populations in the Northeast, um, following the, you know, during this time period where this is becoming a very densely populated part of the country, um, that's when you begin to see across the Northeast, um, towns, uh, 
these beach associations adopting these sort of exclusionary measures that complemented and reinforced patterns of exclusion in housing markets and in schools. Um, so that's one of the sort of notes. So it's really at this point in the 1950s and 60s where you begin to see cities that previously didn't have um, any type of sort of beach access restrictions suddenly adopting them and doing so in a way that is very sort of um, reactionary in nature. Um, so that's a sort of, you know, so that's one part of this, is that kind of looking at you know, sort of the longer history, but then also kind of showing how there was something really, really happening here in the 1950s and 60s that is changing the sort of outlook of many um, wealthy communities uh, in this part of the country. Is there something about water? I mean, I, I'm, I've, I've been fascinated by this for a while. Um, you know, in the history of uh, urban public pools, pools in America, uh, the work of Jeff Wiltz on this uh, in contested waters, um, the, this sense of like bodily um, harm or fear of being in, in a, li- a liquid space you know, not wanting to be in that space with black people or or people of a different race or class that are perceived as being less clean than you or something. I mean, is there something more like specific about that? With is that apply with beaches as well? I think absolutely. I think that there are uh, intimate leisure spaces, particularly uh, leisure that takes place on bodies of water, is very intimate. Um, it is something where you know, again bodily exposure. But also, as well, I mean, this is a, you know, these are places where um, there is a kind of almost a real tendency uh, to want to claim space for people among like themselves. I mean, you know, so in a sense, you know, much of these, many of these beach associations, for instance, they had, sort of had their own sort of ethnic identities attached to them, you know, the sort of Irish beach, the Italian beach, um, you know, or the Wasp beach. I mean, you know, places that were very clearly marked by a community. Um, so you have that dynamic at play here, and race obviously comes into play. But I would say, you know, it's probably, you know, one of the things that's really struck me, even looking at um, looking at memoirs and oral histories of African Americans who grew up in Connecticut, along with some of my previous research on the South, is how experiences of discrimination um, in places of play were oftentimes, were in many instances, like the first times that African Americans encountered racism. I mean, so many memoirs, it's like, you know, they when you're describing, um, you know, when they sort of really had their first experience of sort of really um, encountering sort of um, racism. It was in, on a beach, at a pool. Um, you know, Anne Petrie, as I described, I, the um, Harlem Renaissance novelist, I you know, use an example of her. She had, was asked to write a piece for this kind of famous series that um, Negro Digest did back in the 1940s and 50s called My Most Humiliating Jim Crow Experience. And it was these sort of testimonies by African Americans as to sort of, you know, what sort of most visceral sort of mem- experience. They, and she described an incident, and she grew up in Old Sabre, Connecticut, and she described an incident um, that took place when she was a child on a Sunday school picnic at a beach in, in the state where um, she being the only African American child in the group was singled out and they were, um, the whole group was expelled. Um, Constance Baker Motley, the um, famed African American jurist as well, said that her first encounter with racism was um, trying to access a beach um, outside of New Haven, Connecticut. So I think that there's a certain kind of common thread here about how you know, this, these types of places ironically places where people go for play and carefree also are these places that are scenes of Real ugly um, instances of bigotry. Um, oftentimes, in many instances, directed at children. 
Um, and that's kind of one of the sort of pieces of this story is that you know, Asmed begins to um, turn what was thought, what he hoped would just be a sort of um, a, a fun day at the beach, instead it became a cause, it became a protest, and, and um, that you begin to really see the sort of ugly side of what were otherwise, or at least you know, what they liked and what they often portrayed themselves to be as sort of very open-minded, liberal um, communities. I mean, you know, these are sort of, you know, Connecticut's a blue state, it's one of the bluest of the blue states, and yet it was a, um, a place where once he began to challenge the sort of segregationist foundations behind um, these, again, ostensibly colorblind laws, you know, saying, you know, this is a private beach or, you know, you have to pay this fee to get, you know, once he began to sort of challenge that and actually connect the, the sort of relationship between these private exclusionary measures and the fact that African-American children in Hartford and Harlem and, and many other cities had um, basically would go through their entire lives without ever even seeing the beach, uh, much less enjoying these types of spaces and really suffering from great um, recreational deprivations in their own communities. Once he began sort of exposing that, then you begin to see a real hostile reaction. Um, and that's where the sort of part of my story unfolds. Is in the, and it was, became almost a, it was a decade-long battle um, that took place across in the 1970s, where every summer um, he was bringing children down there, along with, with mothers, African-American mothers from Hartford who were serving as chaperones. Um, and they were going down there and seeking, demanding the right to access what they believed, and again, what the law, I mean, some of uh, validated was public land. Um. Yeah, this is uh, such an important story, and uh, I think it's all the more important given uh, the enduring racial and economic inequality that still characterizes American life, and the increasing uh, privatization of public spaces in general, whether that's uh, gated communities or public parks or business improvement districts or all, the, all, all kinds of policies that have increasingly come to shape American life. Um, this is such an interesting um, stage on which to see um, those trends unfold. So uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about it. Um, his, uh, Professor Carl's first book was The Land Was Ours from UNC Press. There's a great new book called Free the Beach coming out from Yale very shortly, and uh, you should check it out. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks.